You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. So let me say, because youth pastors have a tendency to joke around, don't you dare ding-dong ditch. Because if you do, I'm going to kick Chip in the shin. (laughs) You need to pray over who you're going to take this to and invite, and not only maybe invite them, but bring them with you, uh, because we are going to celebrate the resurrection next week, and we're going to preach the gospel. And so bring them. Um, This morning, we venture on in Exodus, um, as we do, if you remember back in Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh for the first time to explain to him, here's what God has sent us here for. He sent us to tell you, you need to let his people go a three days journey into the wilderness so that they can worship him and serve him. And Pharaoh asked this question that we spent an entire morning focusing on. Pharaoh's question was, who is the Lord? But if you'll remember, it wasn't really a question, but more of like a statement Because what Pharaoh really said was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should do what he says and let his people go? Well, Pharaoh's question, it reveals a lot about him, but it also reveals quite a bit about us. Because if you you look pretty closely at Pharaoh, you could almost believe that this guy is a 21st century postmodern guy which would be kind of weird because he'd be postmodern before there was even modern, if you could do that. But that's Pharaoh. I mean, he kind of looks and sounds like one of us. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'd like to point out to you that he didn't say, who's the Lord that I should believe in him? He didn't say anything about belief. I didn't know if you're, you're aware of this or not, but 97% of Americans claim to believe in God. Did you know that? 97%. That leaves three. 3% who say, I don't believe there's a God. So 97% of Americans believe on some level, in some shape, form, or fashion, that there is a God. We could almost get like excited and comfortable and proud of that statistic. Like a 97, that's an A plus, right? Well, it sounds good until you realize that 100% of the demons believe in God. Like, so we're not even as good as the demons at that. Never in history... Has there been a spiritual force of evil, an evil entity, a demon who's gotten up on their perch around all the other demons and said, you know, this whole God thing, I'm not buying it. Not one. They all believe. In fact, James tells us that they believe so much in God that they shudder. They fear him. Matt Chandler pastor in Texas was preaching on this a couple of years ago, and I'd like to share with you something that he said about this. He said, it's like we can tolerate the idea of God as long as he minds his own business. It's like we can tolerate this idea of who God is as long as he never asks us to do things that make us uncomfortable. 
Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, that I should do what he tells me? It's as if Pharaoh says to God, hey, God, who do you think you are? Well, this morning, God is going to respond to that question. And in my words, God says, you better fasten your seatbelt because I'm about to show you. If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 7, that's where we're going to begin today. And last week, um, Chip walked through the first part of Exodus 7 where Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and Aaron does what God tells him to do. He throws his staff down on the ground and it turns into a serpent, a snake. Well, all of uh, Pharaoh's magicians, they're like, oh, we can do that too. We, We know that trick. They throw their staffs down and they turn into snakes too. But God, I think wanting to reveal to Pharaoh, here's a little bitty glimpse into what all is about to go down. Aaron's snake devours all of the other ones. And this sheds a little bit of light on what's getting ready to happen in Egypt. So look with me in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this, you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and turn it into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will go, grow weary from drinking of it. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, all their pools, so that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Any of you in here that get a little queasy at the sight of blood, you're toast and you're out already. You're laying on the ground, you're done. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water of the Nile turned into blood. And I love this verse. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank. In case you wondered if that was a word, sure is. The Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same secret by their secret arts. They did the same. They made it look like they were turning things into blood. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. And I want you to take notice that every time Moses goes into the Lord on behalf of God, let my people go, it's followed with the same thing, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with wild frogs. 
the Nile will swarm with frogs that will come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and your ovens and your kneading bowls. They're going to get in your bed. They're going to get in your food. They're going to be all over everything. The frogs will come up on you and on your people and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff over the rivers and all of the frogs will cover the land. Verse seven, but the magicians were able to do the same thing by their secret arts and they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses asked Pharaoh, all right, well, when do you want me to do this? And Pharaoh says, how about tomorrow? (laughs) So apparently he's not quite desperate yet. Just do it sometime tomorrow. So verse 10, Moses says, as you wish, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. And so Moses goes before the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh and the frogs are all dead and they pile them up into a massive heap. I don't want to be on that crew. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, no more frogs, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So up to this point, um, Pharaoh's magicians, his sorcerers, they're able to kind of replicate Um, what Moses and Aaron do. They're somehow able to make water look like it's turned into blood. They're able to provoke or to get frogs to come up out of the river. So they make it look like, hey, maybe Moses and Aaron are just trying out some parlor tricks here as well. But what we're about to see is that the magicians, they've reached their limits, okay? Um, Look at Exodus 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on everybody. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. If you uh, grew up when I did, if you are my age or older, um, you might remember back in the 80s, we basically had two magicians. We had David Copperfield and then we also had Doug Henning. Does anyone else remember Doug Henning? Doug Henning is like 10 levels of awesome. If you don't remember Doug Henning, you need to go home and YouTube him. Your day will be made. But these were your guys. That's it. Now there are so many of these people, you can't count them. But they also don't call themselves magicians anymore. You know what they are now? They're illusionists. And here's why. That's actually what they're doing. They're making something appear to happen or to take place that's not actually happening or taking place. So Pharaoh has this little band of magicians, sorcerers, illusionists. Really what they are is imposters. 
And now all of a sudden, God has gone beyond what they can even make appear to happen. And I want you to notice what they say to Pharaoh. They say, hey, Pharaoh, you better wake up. This is the finger of God. The finger. I don't know if they intended this or not, but I think what's being said here is, you're just now seeing the beginning of what this God can do. All this took was his finger. What if he involves five fingers? What, what if he uses his whole hand? You better, you better wake up here, Pharaoh. But what does Pharaoh do? Same thing. Pharaoh is still not going to obey. And here's why. For Pharaoh, this is not about belief. It's about surrender. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not he believes there's a God or he believes that this God exists. I'm not going to surrender to him. I'm not going to obey what he says. Now watch what happens next. God's about to vow to send swarms of flies. Look at Exodus 8, 24. And the Lord did so. He did what he said he was going to do. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. Within the land. Okay, go back with me. Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and what did God say? Let my people go a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to me. That's what God has asked. Last week, um, Chip pointed out that the Lord is not looking for delayed obedience. I would add to that this morning that God is not looking for partial obedience either. And that's what Pharaoh is bringing. That's what he's offering here. Pharaoh says, I tell you what, I'll let you go and worship God, but it's going to have to be right here. And Moses says, sorry, you're confused. That's not the offer or the deal that God has put on the table. So you read just a little bit further and Pharaoh comes back and he says, okay, all right. I tell you what, I will let you go into the wilderness, but look at verse 28. Only you must not go very far. He just keeps trying to bargain. We haven't talked about this a lot, but um, our family decided months and months ago we were going to sell our house and move back into the city of Madison for several reasons. So we sold our house. Um, As of this moment, we still don't have another house. So in a month, um, we might be sleeping over. Uh, We'll see how that goes. But a few weeks ago, we found this house and we thought, hey, this could work. All right? This could work. Uh, It needs a little bit of help and a little bit of fixing, but this house could work. So I did what any of you would do. I made an offer on this house that I thought was really solid. Also understanding, if I buy this house, we're going to have a little money to spend on fixing it. So we put the offer in and we waited. 24 hours, 48 hours, finally, these people come back and their counter was, we'll sell it to you for the list price. 
And I'm like, okay, I don't think you guys have done this before. You understand how this works. We, we got to give back and forth. So we decided, well, we'll make a counter offer. And I countered what I thought they should have countered in the first place. Like, let me show them how this works. So we sent in our counter offer. And it probably wasn't even a day later, they came back again. No, we'll take the list price. And this was the point where Morgan and I were like, okay, we're tapping out here because we came ready to bargain, but evidently you did not. And by the way, they're still sitting there three weeks plus later with their house. A little side note. Here's the thing. The Lord is not someone to be bargained with. And Pharaoh just doesn't get it. See, if God has his house for sale for like 300,000, Pharaoh's coming in and going, okay, God, here's my, here's my offer. $10 and I'll pay the closing. And, and God is going, no, I will take what I've asked for. And Pharaoh just doesn't get it. And Moses has to keep explaining it to him. And so this pattern and cycle continues. Moses comes in and says, if you don't let God's people go, God is going to kill all of the livestock in your country. And this doesn't just mean that like Pharaoh's pet cow is going to die. The livestock was the number one source of their economy. And Pharaoh didn't obey. And so all the cows, all the sheep, all the camels, all the donkeys, poof, dead. Pharaoh's still not giving in. So then he sends Moses in and Moses says, Pharaoh, if you do not let God's people go, God is going to inflict all the people of your country, rich, poor, all of them with boils all over your skin. You think leprosy is nasty? You just wait and see. And Pharaoh doesn't listen. And so God, you need to catch this because we're going to come back to it later. God very specifically has Moses go before Pharaoh, reach down, grab soot and ashes, and just kind of like LeBron James before a Cavs game starts, poof, throws it up in the air. And that dust shoots out all over the land of Egypt and all the Egyptians are inflicted with boils all over their skin. Pharaoh's still not having any of this. So now God is going to open up the heavens and send hail. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, here it is again, that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. By now, I could have put out my hand and struck you down, Pharaoh, struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And now here's the root of it all. God says to him through Moses, you are still exalting yourself. This is not about does Pharaoh believe that there's a God. It's about surrender. But this time, there's enough death 
and destruction because the hail comes and it kills people. It destroys houses. If there was any livestock left, they're all dead now. It smashes crops. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron to come in and he raises the white flag like, okay, I'm done. At least temporarily. Until the rain and the hail go away. And then Pharaoh returns to his sin and rebellion. So now the Lord is going to take it up even another notch. Look at Exodus 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. This time, God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and not only tell him what I'm about to do, I want you to tell him why. I want you to explain to him, Pharaoh, God is about to unleash another plague on you. And understand that he is doing this not only so that you will know who he is and what he can do, but so that we, his people, will not only see it, but that we will tell our children and our children's children and our children's children's children so that generations, Pharaoh, will know what I have done to you on behalf of my people for my glory. What God's ultimately saying to Pharaoh is, buddy, I'm going to make you famous. But this is not the kind of famous that you and I dream about. This is not the kind of legacy that we would prefer to leave behind for our family. And this time, Pharaoh's servants even begin to start pleading with him and turning against him. Look at verse 7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So his servants say to him, why don't you just let Moses and Aaron and all the men go? So again, Pharaoh starts trying to bargain. Okay, Moses, I'll let all the men go. Moses says, nope, you're not understanding the deal here. And at this point, God unleashes locusts. I don't know how you feel about locusts. I'm not a big fan. Just the sound of them gives me the creeps. I read a, a Laura Ingalls Wilder, very, very famous American author, wrote not a fiction story, but wrote about in her life when she was young that she was out in a field with her sister and they heard locusts coming. And then they saw the locusts coming. And they took off running for their house. And by the time they got to the house, the locusts had so overtaken them and they were so thick that they could hear them crunching and smashing underneath their feet every step that they took. They could barely even see the house because they were so thick in front of them. They damaged the house. They killed animals. They destroyed crops. Here's why I shared this with you. Look at verse 14. It says that the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. 
Here's what this means. Laura's locust story pales in comparison to what God did in Egypt. Well, the locust apparently break Pharaoh, and I use that word apparently very intentionally. Look at Exodus 10 verse 16. It says, Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Therefore, forgive my sin only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord sent the locust away. There wasn't one of them left in the whole country. Verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. I want you to notice what Pharaoh says when he brings Moses and Aaron in. In verse 16, he said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God. He's not my God. So I'm still not obeying him or surrendering to him. However, I really don't want to die. This is what he says here. I'm, I'm going to plead with you, but I'm only going to plead this once. And I'm asking you, remove this death from me. What's going on here is what we could call apparent repentance. And if you remember, I said, you know, there are a lot of ways that Pharaoh looks like he could just fit right on in here among us. We need to be very, very careful in seeing and understanding that in many, many ways, Pharaoh can reflect who we are when we choose to live in the flesh. Pharaoh can really, really reflect us. There are times that we go through things that kind of like Job's friends are trying to say, you know, you must have sinned or done something wrong to bring all this on you. And Job's like, who do you think you are? And it didn't have anything to do with what Job had done. For some reason, God had allowed life to happen and bad things happened and Job walked through them. And that happens with us. Life happens. People that we love die. We walk through suffering. But you know, there are other times when we walk through trials and we walk through struggles and we walk through turmoil and it is brought on by our own sin. And in the midst of this, we very apparently cry out to God in repentance, but it's not repentance. It's what the Bible refers to as worldly sorrow. And let me give you some examples of worldly sorrow. When a kid isn't sorry for what he did, but he's just sorry he got caught, that's worldly sorrow. When an adult isn't broken over the sin they've committed against someone else and against God, they're just really, really frustrated and irritated and angered by the consequences that sin has brought, that's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, it hangs out right on the edge of darkness. Like, I just, I just want to live right here. It camps there. And all that it brings us is more darkness. That's it. 
See, repentance is this realization and this confession of I am in the dark and I so desperately need to be brought back to the light, Lord. Reveal whatever you have to, do whatever you have to within me, God, to bring me back to you. That's repentance. Worldly sorrow is I am in the dark and dadgummit, somebody has figured it out. I've been made. And that's where Pharaoh lives. Pharaoh lives right on the edge of darkness. And so God is now going to unleash that on him. Look at Exodus 10, 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. And I want you to notice that this time, he doesn't even send Moses into Pharaoh. He just says, do it. Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. That's some powerful darkness. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. At this point, Pharaoh starts trying to bargain with Moses again. And Moses explains to Pharaoh, for the umpteenth time, my man, you've heard God's offer. It's still on the table, but it's not going to be there much longer. And at this point, Pharaoh has had it. Look at verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you will die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Not even the darkness would break Pharaoh. And as I said, worldly sorrow, it just says, how how close and how, how snugged up against the darkness can I get? There's nothing really left. And what we need to understand, what we desperately need to understand is the only thing on the other side of darkness is death. That's it. I know you know what Jesus said in John 3.16. We all do. But if you read the verses immediately after that, Jesus told Nicodemus, understand, there are people who love the darkness and they don't want anything to do with the light. And this is Pharaoh. The only thing on the other side of darkness is death. And as we're going to see next week, that's what the final plague is. But that's for next week. As we wrap up this morning, I want to go back to the question that we started with. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is God that I should revere him, that I should surrender to him? Well, I'd like to tell you this morning, He is the one true God. There are no others. He is eternal. He is creator. And you see, if there is one true creator God, then you and I can't worship the things he created. They're not worthy of our worship. Only he is. We didn't have enough time this morning 
to really dig into these plagues the way we could. Uh, I'm going to send out some resources for you this week. I would encourage you do some more study because it's really incredible as you walk into each one of them. But what you see is that each one of these plagues are a direct response. They are a direct rebuke from God on Egypt for their false gods. For instance, the Egyptians had a god named Hopi, H-A-P-I. Hopi was the god of the Nile. Well, God started by showing the Egyptians, you think you have a god of the Nile? Apparently not, because I just took his river and I turned it into blood. Then there's Apis, the god of all the livestock. He's like this bull god. You've probably seen pictures of him. And so being the god of all the livestock, he's also kind of like God over all of their economy. Well, God shows that he has no power because God in an instant takes all their livestock and strikes it dead. Bam. And then, of course, you have Ra, the sun god. Well, God showed him up because God said, I'm just going to hide him for three days. And God brought pitch darkness over all the land. That's just a small sample of what God so methodically, intentionally did here. He clearly showed his power and his authority over every false god that Egypt had. And it's kind of easy to sit here in 21st century America for us and look at the Egyptian and go, what a bunch of idiots. I mean, who worships the sun and scorpions and cows and a river? We would never worship those things. And we don't. We just worship other things. We worship technology. I mean, we like drool and salivate and go into debt over it. We got to have it. We worship food. We, we actually subconsciously convince ourselves we're going to find comfort in food. I've never, ever, ever been truly comforted by cookies. They taste good. I think they're going to comfort me. We worship food. We worship guns. And the reason that we worship guns is because we worship comfort and safety, like an idea of safety. Now, I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with food. I'm going to go eat some later. I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with guns. But we worship things other than our creator. We worship houses. We worship cars. We worship boats. Um, we worship sports teams. We worship famous people. And then they do stupid things and screw up. And we wonder, why in the world do they do that? Well, because they're people. We worship comfort and safety. We worship our financial investments. We worship retirement. We worship money. And we worship the one true God. But here's what I'm beginning to discover. It's very difficult to do both. And there's nothing in the created order of what God has done that is worthy of my worship. Only the creator. 
And those things that he have crea- he's created, they ought to be these vehicles and catalysts of calling my attention back to his greatness. But Pharaoh was in love with all of those things. Pharaoh was determined to guard his kingdom. The Lord is the one true God. All others are soot and ashes and rust and sinking sand. The Lord is also a just judge. If you go back to the plague of the boils, what did Moses reach down, take into his hands, throw up in the air, soot and ashes? Friends, I will tell you that this would have been the very thing that would have been left over, probably would have been smeared all over the faces, clogged in the ears and the noses, staining the clothes of the Israelites from slaving day after day, week after week, month after month, over the oven and the fire from making bricks. It's almost as if God through Moses took that soot and said, hey, Pharaoh, Here's your bricks back. The Lord is a just judge. He is perfect and righteous. But see, here's where we get to say, thank you, God, glory, hallelujah. He is also a gracious savior. The Israelites endured the first three plagues. But then plague number four came, the swarm of flies, and they were spared. Look with me in, in Exodus eight twenty two. It says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Was it because of their goodness that they got spared? Nope. Was it because they were better than the Egyptians? Nope. We're going to see here in a few weeks, once they get out in the wilderness, we're going to see who they really are. They're just like the Egyptians with another name. They keep going back to these false gods. So why on earth did God spare them? It's because of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his love. And see here, we stand on the other side of the cross and we know, no, I'm not Pharaoh, but you know what? God loves me so much that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That in the midst of my sin, Christ died for me. Jesus is Lord. He is hope. He is life. But friends, yes, we are called to believe. The apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter and the apostle James and the apostle John And even Jesus himself explained to us that it's not just about belief. It's about the evidence of that belief bearing fruit in our life. It's about you and I obeying. Jesus says, come, follow me. Full surrender. Immediate and complete obedience. 
I want to close reading with you in Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that's now, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I want to exhort you and encourage you today to hear the voice of God, that you would say, Lord, through the power of your spirit and your word, would you speak to me? Would you draw me to you? I believe and I surrender. He is worthy. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we come to you and thank you that you have pursued us, that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us. And Lord, we we pray that if there's any sin in our life, Lord, where we are still walking in that sin. Lord, we don't want to waste our time with worldly sorrow. We ask you today to bring us to a place of repentance. Lord, we thank you for so many good and amazing things you have placed in front of us to not only enjoy in this life, but God, to savor and to to know that you are the great provider. Father, we ask that you would guard our hearts against beginning to worship those things. Lord, that our greatest treasure would be you. This morning we have the opportunity to take communion. And the way we do that here at the Brook is we have communion tables set up all around the room. And in just a moment... um, When you are ready, you can go, whether it's by yourself, um, with a friend, with your family. Take that bread in that cup, come back to your seat, stand up, come to the foot of the cross, whatever you sense the Lord leading you to do. But we want you to understand that we take this bread and this cup as small and insignificant as they may seem. 
they have eternal significance. Because Jesus laid down his life, his body was broken, his blood was spilled so that our sin might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled back to the Father. So we encourage you as you come and you take it, that you take some moments to reflect and pray and remember the marvelous gift of the grace of our God through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would have the freedom to transform our minds and deepen our hunger to know our Father. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We proclaim that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the only one worthy of our praise. So we give it to you now. We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.